Hallelujah, indeed. Thank you, praise team, for leading us in, uh, in praise and worship. We appreciate that very much. For a, a few of you who don't know, my name is David Thompson. I'm not the regular preacher of the Word who gets behind this pulpit every Sunday. John David, my son, and his wife, Elise, are on both a work and R&R getaway. So uh, much, much needed and much, uh, much required. He's been, uh, as most of you know, kind of working two jobs for several years, burning the candle on both ends. And I pray that this time for him would be a refreshing one maritally, it would be refreshing certainly physically, that he would get true rest, but also that it would be refreshing spiritually that the Lord would bring him back with a new song in his heart. Not that he's suffering from that, but it would do us all good to uh, see the Lord afresh and anew. And so in a moment, we'll pray and we'll add that to our prayers. There's also a number of folks who are sick and missing, my wife included. Terry came down with some sickness Friday. So we'll uh, pray for all those that are, that are out in just a little bit. So John David will be back the end of this week, but we've given him a second week not to have to prepare since he's traveling. So we'll hear from Grady Cook is preparing uh, some study and uh, it's interesting. So this, this three weeks really, John David's sermon last week and mine this week and Grady's next are a sabbatical from what is typically expositionary, uh, expository preaching. We've been in Matthew obviously and it can still be expository, right, on any given Sunday morning as we open the Scripture and work verse by verse to understand what it says, explain it, and how it applies. But for some reason, uh, we'll be in Psalm 33 this morning, a little bit of 32 and then 33. If you use that as the opportunity to go ahead and open your Bible, we will be there most of the morning. Uh, I teased John David, who I didn't know what he was going to preach last week, but in, with only one sermon before he went on his trip, he chose Psalm 34. I said, you knew I was going to preach Psalm 33, and you just needed to one-up me, right? <laughs> so, turns out his sermon was about praise, um, and Psalm 33 is all about praise and worship. Really interesting psalm, Psalm um, Psalm 33 is uh, a command or a call. It's a little stronger than just a call, as you'll see in the first three verses, to praise and worship the Lord. In fact, a little bit uncomfortable for most of, most of us. I don't know your background, but uh, I was raised Southern Baptist, and to, uh, we were fairly stoic. We sang pretty well, but there was obviously no dancing and no shouting. No raising of hands or anything like that. Um, there are times that praise will probably include some shouting. In fact, we're commanded to shout at times. Certainly in the songs, when we sing, it should be uh, just bubbling up from our heart. So we'll be challenged a little bit in our worship and praise, I trust, this morning from Scripture, from what the Lord has to say. I decided that it's really Psalm 33, which we're going to look at this morning. By the way, we don't know the author. It is not like many psalms. There is no heading that gives us the occasion of the song, why it was written. 
Um, could be David, could be Asaph, could be one of the sons of Korah. We have no idea. It is not given to us. <clears throat> and with no heading and no occasion, he just jumps into the, jumps into the topic of praise. I, I want to know this author. Maybe one day we'll, we'll get to know him because he was very organized. When we begin to un, unfold and unpack the whole chapter, 22 verses, it's very well organized. It's really amazing. And I just want to know this guy who put to song some doctrines of God and the resultant um, response from man in such a, such a cool way. But it's appropriate that 33 follows 32. There is no connection directly that we know of. It might have been just the wisdom of the organizers of the Psalms that put them back to back. We don't know. But it's appropriate before we jump into Psalm 33 for a couple of reasons. It's right on the heels of 32 where it, we know it was King David and it's the effect of his sin on his body and his spirit in Psalm 32 and ultimately what he does with it. Initially, we know he hid it. Go ahead, if you're in 32, I'm just going to read a few verses. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. This is not our text this morning. But beginning, he said, How blessed is he whose wrongdoing is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is a person who, whose guilt the Lord does not take into account, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, no confession, right? We can identify with that. As we were singing, I was thinking about there's something we all know, and one of the reasons this is an appropriate psalm to lead into Psalm 33 is this is about forgiveness. This is about hiding my sin. And if there's anything we all know, it's the Adamic nature, right? That when I do wrong, doesn't matter, I think wrong, I act wrong, I want to hide it. I don't want you to see it. I don't want God to see it, ha ha, like I can hide it. But we don't want to, we don't want it to be exposed. You know why, that's who I am. I don't want you to know who I am, because it's not pretty. But anyway, David kept silent about his sin, there was no confession. By the way, with Bathsheba, he went almost 12 months with no confession until God saw fit to send Nathan. Wow. With what we know about David, that's kind of amazing. But anyway, his body was wasting away. It was physical. He groaned all day long. The idea there is there was no vitality, no zest for life, no will to go on, all impacted, which was both emotional and spiritual. He would have been pegged as... I don't know, something psychologically in today's world. But we know that God's hand was heavy upon him. Depression leading to physical, spiritual maladies and ultimate agony. And then verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you. I didn't hide my guilt. I said, I will confess my wrongdoings to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And then from 6 down to 10, he he really calls us all. This is something all those who desire godliness should do. Acknowledge 
our wrongdoing before the Lord, experience the release of our guilt. And then we have 11, the end, which leads to to our chapter we're gonna look at. Look what he says in 11. This is the praise and the worship. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. The things we're gonna look at in Psalm 33 is about praise and worship, genuine praise and worship. Apart from 32, we have nothing to offer in worship and praise, nothing. It's empty and vain to go to the altar, to go to the synagogue, to come to church, if my heart is not forgiven. So before we jump into looking at praise and worship and understanding Psalm 33, I wanted to see that David actually ends up praising the Lord out of his forgiveness. What did David do to be released of his guilt? Confession. He didn't do anything. He agreed with God's assessment of his life and his heart. And prior to Christ, trusted in God's perfect salvation. And David knew it well, the friend of God. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into the text of Psalm 33 this morning. And we're going to read all 22 verses, but let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we open your word, it is convicting. I don't line up with it even now. So we fall ahead of reading your word, during reading your word, and after reading your word, understanding that our standing is in Jesus Christ. Our praise and our worship, even our desire to praise and worship, you initiated Had Nathan not gone to David, no telling how long he would have denied or hidden his sin. Lord, keep us from hiding our sin. Let us experience your loving kindness in preparation even for next week's Lord's Supper where we look at the sacrifice of your son for our forgiveness. We know that's our standing even today. Lord, we do pray for John David and Elise. We pray for Terry and several others who I know are sick. Lord, we ask you would refresh their marriage, allow them to communicate in a way that they haven't been able to in a long time, that they might rest in a way they haven't been able to, and that their own spiritual relationship with you that they through the word and through their fellowship you would refresh and bring new joy in their heart and in their spirit lord and we lay the uh, the prayers that we've had for a long time to give some clarity uh, for john david and his job that you would help answer those questions as we wait and hope in you Lord, thank you for this passage that we're going to look at. Thank you that it is your word. We bow before it, and we ask you to teach us from it. In your name we pray. Amen. So if you're not open, let me have you open to Psalm 33. And we're going to read the entire chapter. 
you have, you should have a, an outline that I put together. It's not my outline, I borrowed it, but it's a great organization. Just glance at it before we read and see if you can see those breaks and understand sort of the organization that this psalmist had. The first three verses are a call to praise. Verses four and five lay out the outline for the rest of the chapter apart from the conclusion, and you'll see that as we read through it. So follow along as I read Psalm 33. Sing for joy in the Lord, you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their lights. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He puts the depths in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord nullifies the plans of nations. He frustrates the plans of people. The plan of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen for his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of mankind. From his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all, he who understands all their works, the king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not rescued by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory. Nor does it rescue anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who wait for his faithfulness, to rescue their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your favor, Lord, be upon us just as we have waited for you. Amen. So verses one through three in that chapter are clearly a call to praise, six imperatives telling us to praise the Lord and to worship strongly, urgently imploring us to give him our attention, make him the focus of our devotion. Six different words are used. We aren't as apt with our language to match every one with, with English words, but there's six different words, concepts of how we praise. Thanksgiving is in there as one of them. Praises of shout is a different word. But all these are four different ways. The psalmist is saying we ought to lift to God in every way possible our genuine prayer and worship. 
In just the three short verses, we've got the six imperatives, also six different ways of saying that we should pray. Sing for joy, give thanks, and sing praises with instruments. By the way, this is the first psalm we have that incorporates instruments for anybody who wonders, is it right to have instruments? Clearly so, as Scripture tells us. Sing to him a new song, that's interesting. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. I wanted to say hallelujah, having studied this about as loud as I could as we sang that last praise song. Praise is becoming, it says, to the upright. It befits the upright. We don't use that word very much. It suits those who follow the Lord, seeking to do what is right in His eyes. If that is you, praise suits you. What exactly does that mean? It means it is an appropriate choice of clothes. It's a great picture that you should put on each and every day. You know, you and I go to our closet in the morning having to make a decision. Many of you are a day ahead of us and you're pulling your clothes and making your choices the night before, perhaps. But I'll go to the, and we've got a decision to make. What am I gonna put on? What's appropriate today? It's Saturday, I can, I'm gonna work in the yard. Okay, I've got what to get, right? I'm going to work, I've gotta see a client, I know what to get, it's appropriate clothing. This says it's appropriate each day that the godly person puts on praise every day, just like clothes, making a choice of what you desire, what's fitting for that day. The right choice, the fitting selection is to put praise on for the Lord, just like the garment that you choose to dress. In prayer, make it your predisposition to give thanks in all things. Ask the Lord to show you today things about which you should shout to Him. We actually cannot go too far in honoring the Lord. We can't overdo praise or over-worship the Lord. He is far too valuable than we can ever imagine. The best that I can muster to offer him adds nothing to his stature or to his prominence. He's worth more than anything I could give him. So what do we bring him? If he's not looking for the blood of goats and lambs in sacrifice, if beautiful smelling incense with aromatic Smoke rising upward is not what he prefers. If the richest person on earth could offer everything they have and that doesn't interest him, how do I bring something that he does want? What is pleasing to him? Because it is appropriate. God deserves our gifts. What do we bring? What offerings do we make? He is worthy. And I want to take just a a little digression and talk about, discuss God's evaluation of our gifts. Because he does evaluate our gifts. How does he evaluate them? What does he do? What is he looking at? When an offering is brought to God, to God, whether it's sacrifices of old, gifts today, financial or otherwise, prayers offered up, bodily sacrificing, and other types of bodily sacrifices, when these are brought to the altar to be given to God, he is not looking at the thing offered so much. 
He's not impressed by the size, the magnitude, the amount, the impressiveness. God is looking at the heart of the person bringing the thing offered. Proverbs 21, 27 says, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? The implication is his offering was a real offering, but his heart was not right. He was wicked. So no matter what he offered, it, the thing didn't matter. What mattered was his heart. Any offering to God from the wicked is actually an abomination, even if their intent is not evil. They are wicked, and therefore they don't have anything to offer God. Their heart is not right with him. Isaiah, Isaiah 1, we all know it, verses 10 to 15 in Isaiah's pronouncement of God's word to the nation of Israel, who continued to practice religiously, religious activities all the time, religiously. Those of the law while ignoring obedience to the, God's commands from the heart. Listen what God says about that. These were rituals, this is going with worship or offerings that are somehow earning me something they're a payoff or just a ritual. The word of the Lord says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your many sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling in my courtyards? Do not go on bringing your worthless offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the proclamation of assembly. I cannot endure your wrongdoing in the festive assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I'm tired of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you offer many prayers, I will not be listening. Your hands are covered with blood. Many of you know Psalm 51, which is David's confession after Bathsheba, after Nathan, got his attention. In that prayer to God, he says, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, you know this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So why does he want a broken heart? Why does he want a broken, contrite spirit? It is indeed what is both truly best for me as an offerer, but more importantly, it is ultimately what brings him the greatest joy that I could offer. It is the thing I have to offer him, is a broken and contrite heart, a humble heart before him. That's it. And that ought to be our goal when we come to church. When I read Psalm 33, 1 to 3, as we move back into the text, I can't help but measure myself. 
Is this the level of enthusiasm or worship that's reflected in my heart? Obviously, many times it is not. I don't feel that. By the way, I want to be real clear here. This is not about a feeling. We'll see it real clearly in the text, but this is not about mustering a feeling. God is not interested in us mustering a feeling of anything emotional. That is not what is happening here in verse 1 to 3. This is the response of a knowledge of God applied to the heart of a godly person, someone who wants to please God, which is a work of him to begin with, but not an emotion. So even when I read it, I'm not trying to measure it emotionally, but even measuring it on the terms of, is this the expression of my heart? And it's not always. So what do I do about it? If I don't find that that's my disposition, I'm not overflowing in worship, what do I do? Where do I go? Because he doesn't want us to muster an emotion. What does he want us to do? That's what Psalm 33 is all about. Not an outward conformity to what worship looks like, and it's not intuitive. We come to worship and we sing, and it is good. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying let's not sing if you don't have a perfect heart. That's not what, what I'm saying. But I'm saying let's recognize that the heart is what God is looking at, and it ought to be something I'm fully aware of if I'm harboring sin or if I'm not right with him or if I've got a brokenness in a relationship with a brother or sister. That ought to, that ought to be paramount because that's what's paramount to God. And that is also not, I'm not saying that worship is emotionless. I'm not saying that. In fact, emotions are typically a byproduct of genuine worship. It's okay to feel it, but the feeling isn't the worship. Rather, genuine praise and worship begins with a knowledge of God. It begins in your brain. That's where it begins. What is called for that I might respond to God in a fitting way? What should I do to foster and nurture and grow in putting on these clothes of praise? What do I actually put on in the morning? What do I do different that I might ultimately have the praise and worship that God loves? The remainder of Psalm 33 answers that question. Verse 4 and 5 lays out the outline, and then we're going to work. We will be skimming across the surface of a deep ocean here. Each one of these four points, truths, themes run throughout Scripture and run as deep as God himself. So just realize this. The psalmist names the theme. He declares the theme or the truth. And then he does a little three or four verse exposition. He does a little demonstration of that topic. But the topic runs as deep as you can't uh, can't get there. So, um, So just be aware that as we're introducing them and as we're talking about them, our job and I'll end here, our job is gonna be to, that they would become our study. They would be the topics that we should spend time on and, and we'll all get it as we go along here. We all know we can't really control our, 
our emotions, but we can control our thoughts. And the psalmist here directs our thoughts to ponder, to know four things about God. If I will commit to meditating and understanding these truths and then putting my trust in them, it will bring forth praise and worship. Four and five, the word of the Lord is upright. Four B, and all his work is done in faithfulness. Five says he loves righteousness and justice. And it also, 5b says, the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. So we'll reference 4a, b, and 5a, b as we look down at the rest of the text to understand what is it about his word, his works, his judgment, and his loyal love, his loving kindness that plays into worship. And then the last three verses are really a prayerful conclusion of his song. Each of these truths contain a buried gem that only diligent and lifelong pursuit uncovers and brings to the surface. I'm reminded of the Psalm 119. Open, this is our prayer, right? Open thou my eyes that I may behold wonderful things, wondrous things from your law nuggets of truth. By the way, the new song that is called for, sing a new song to the Lord, that, there is, it's nothing new. This is just hidden in the Lord. It's something that He reveals to me, an enlightenment of a, an aspect of a gem of the Creator, God, that I see afresh, or maybe for the first time. And I, it ought to, as I see it, and as I love him, as I apply it to my own heart, it ought to result in thanksgiving and praise and worship. That's what the new song is. So sing a new song. Walk through your day with your eyes open to what God is doing and who he is so that he can reveal himself, and then it will result in our praise and worship. Open our eyes, Lord. We may behold wonderful things from your law. It reminds me, it's one of my favorite passages, Romans 11:33. Many of you probably know it. 9, 10, and 11 are a very difficult passage where Paul deals with, so what about the Jews? Are they saved or are they not saved? Where's, what, are, what is their historical? And he goes through a very clear explanation of God setting aside the Jews for a period of time so that Gentiles might be grafted in complicated, difficult passage. Paul explains it artfully, and he ends up in 11 saying, there will be a day when all Jews will be saved. Those alive at a time, we believe, will be saved. By Jesus Christ, by trusting in his blood only, but they will be saved. And then in almost gushing, uncontrollable blurb, Paul writes verse, uh, chapter 11, verses 30, verse 33 to 36. And I, I have to, oh, this is his response after talking about the truth, after explaining the Jews, he, the historical plan of God for the Jews and the Gentiles. And he's flabbergasted by his own words that he wrote. And he says, oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who's known the mind of the Lord or who's become his counselor? 
Or who has he has first given to him that it would be paid back to him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. It's almost like, I don't think Paul planned to write that. I think as he wrote the historical setting of the Jews and the Gentiles in God's plan in history, it amazed him what he even wrote and God's unbelievable wisdom and riches. And it resulted in this exaltation of the, the wisdom of God and praise and worship. Okay, let's look at the four focuses. First, we should meditate on the powerful word of God to generate praise for his powerful word. 4a declares the word of the Lord is right. And then verses six through nine expound on the theme with the most compelling example, the creative pronouncements of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By his breath alone, my word alone, of his mouth, all their lights. He gathered the waters of the sea together as a heap. He puts the depth in storehouses. Isaiah tells us that he holds the oceans in the palm of his hand. His power, that his word, there is nothing else that brings things into being that don't exist. It does, it's otherworldly. We don't know that. Somebody can say something and make something? Come on. Our world isn't built that way, the one we live in. God's not in this world. He can speak and create. That should all, it's wonderful. It's awe-inspiring that he can do that. No other power, no other person. God alone is creator. And so we might then embark on God as creator and God's word specifically. And we could go to John 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning. Nothing was made without him. Nothing. That's Jesus Christ. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus Christ, the word of God, who was at creation through whom everything that was made was made. Hebrews 1, we might go to God after he spoke long ago to the fathers and through the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us through his son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom he also made the world and he's the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature and uphold all things, how? By the word of his power. Now we have the written, powerful, inspired Word of God. Maybe we turn to Colossians 1. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. And back to the text, verse 8 and 9, if we accurately understand, this is what 8 and 9 tells us, if we accurately understand the power of his word, we will fear the Lord and stand in awe. Exodus would be a great place to see that. Many of you know that when Moses, having led the people out and all the things they saw, which again was God's word through Moses, come to Sinai, they're camped at the base. Moses goes up, God says, I want to address the people. He's going to deliver the Ten Commandments. He's going to institute the covenant. He says, I want to talk to the people. 
God himself is going to speak from the mountain to the people. Put up a barrier. Don't let the people get close. They'll die if they come on the mountain. They do all that. Three days, purify yourselves, and then we'll, we'll do this. They prepare themselves. People get ready. God's about to speak. He delivers the Ten Commandments from a black smoke-filled, lightning-filled, fire and smoke. This is, this is a setting that you couldn't do on a stage, trust me. And then thunder and lightning, and God speaks, and the people hear and tremble. That had to be the craziest. I, I mean, if you step over the barrier, you're dead. I mean, this is a serious thing, right? And God speaks. Did the people enjoy it? Hey, this was great. No. They were scared to death. What was their response? We're done with hearing from God. We want him to speak through you, Moses. It's too much. We can't handle it. The same God from the same mountain speaks to Moses and says, come up to me. Don't tell me Moses wasn't afraid. The same voice from the same mountain, the same God spoke and Moses obeyed. And I, we're not in uh, Exodus, so I'm not gonna go any further, but the amazing thing is what did Moses know that the people didn't know? What was he trusting in? The rest of this tells us it's not just the word of God alone, it's his character that's married with his word that we'll see in the rest of this that needs to be married in our faith. We have his word, we trust in his word, but he is a God. Look at the other, let's look at the next one. That's what, it leads us wonderfully to the next setting, the second aspect to meditate and understand that his work is trustworthy and dependable. He declares in 4b that all his work is done in righteousness then in 10 to 12 he develops that theme about the dependable work the lord nullifies or prohibits forbids the counsel of the nations he frustrates the plans of the people 11 in contrast the counsel of the lord stands forever the plans of his heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he's chosen for his own inheritance. So similar to how Paul praised God after pinning 9 to 11 in Romans, when we dig into the faithfulness of his plan and work, we will naturally praise him. The attention here is on God's sovereign plan in history as demonstrated as a demonstration of his faithful work. A huge contrast is drawn in 10 to 11 between the counsel and plans of the nations and the counsel and plan of God. These two key words are very helpful to understand this particular passage. I don't know what your text says. Different versions have plans, plans of the nations and peoples and plans, plans of God. Others say counsel and plans and counsel and plans. I think it's NAS that says counsel of the nations, plans of the people, counsel of the Lord, plans from his heart. That's what we'll use to just discuss it briefly. The word counsel, the first word in both 10 and 11 that's used is 
um, I'm sorry, it refers to another good synonym would be advice or plan or counsel. It could be counsel. So, and it, it, it's the advice. It's a recommended course of action. For instance, Psalm 1, the beginning of Psalm 1 uses this same word to denote that the blessed person does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or of the wicked. He doesn't take their advice. It's not the course of action that he's walking in. The other word, the word plans, refers to the intentions of the heart, often translated purpose. And a good example to see that usage is Genesis 50. You know the Joseph story, where Joseph is now Pharaoh's second in command. His brothers come down, and in chapter 50, he says that Joseph's brothers intended evil for him. It was, you know, God meant it for good, but the brothers intended it for evil. That's this word. Their plan was an intention of evil. It was an evil plan devised by Joseph out of the intentions of their heart. So we might translate 10 and 11 this way. The Lord nullifies or prohibits the planned course of actions of nations. He frustrates their intentions, the intentions of the peoples. Clearly, those are plans and intentions that stand opposed to his providence. In contrast, the planned course of the Lord, course of action for the Lord stands forever. The intentions of his heart from generation to generation. Then this statement or promise, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he's chosen for his own inheritance. Why are they blessed? What is it? What, why blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord? Wonderful. What is it? Why are they blessed? Because we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and those called according to his purpose. Why? Because he that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all, how can he not with him also freely give us all things? Or later in the same Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? There is no other power, no other name. That's why they're blessed, those that he's chosen for his own inheritance. We don't always see things in this same light. Just, you know, despite how we assess situations, it can be personal, it can be family, it can be work and community, it can be national, it can be international. My patience, long-suffering, they don't line up with God's. His timeline seems to be out of whack. We must know and understand that God's plans and the intentions of his heart will never be thwarted. There's not a plan B that he's working on. Which is how Paul can say in Philippians 1, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. How can he say that? Where was his confidence? in the faithful work of God. That's it. There's no other place to put it. He couldn't say it. It's the he when he says that he who began a good work in you. That's where it lies, which is where ours should lie as well. The third aspect to study and consider 
This one can be very intimidating. You remember last week, John David described the gods of both the Egyptians, the near Middle Easterns, whether it's Greek, Roman, really a bulk of the multi-little god nations who worshiped. You didn't want the attention of the gods. Do you remember that? You don't want them looking at you. You don't want them paying attention. You don't want to be on their radar. It's not a good thing. They would not like this passage. Their gods were, they believed they were powerful, but they could not be trusted. This would be their ultimate intimidation. 5a declares that in righteousness the Lord evaluates all mankind. His judgment is righteous. It would be hard to understand 5a without 13 to 15 as our backdrop, as our developed theme. The Lord looks from heaven. That word means, and look, you'll, you'll see three times he uses watch, looks, or sees. That one means he gazes intently from heaven, God's dwelling. He sees all the sons of man, all the sons of mankind, from his dwelling place. This is his sitting place. The idea is he's king. He's on a throne. From his dwelling place, he looks out. That means he's watching all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all, he who understands all their works. No one escapes the judgment of God. The Lord's judgment is thorough, but he's not an indifferent observer. We have see, look, watch. He's not an indifferent observer. He who fashioned or forms the heart in verse 15 is better, tra better translated, he who considers or he who weighs or assesses or discerns it's a clear implication that God's watching eye, his discerning eye, or his, excuse me, his watching eye is a discerning eye. What is he looking for? He clearly sees the heart. We know that. We talked about that in Sunday school uh, with the kids this morning. He who forms the heart is inseparable from he who evaluates its activities. They are inherently connected. The Lord, as sovereign creator of everyone who knows the acts and intentions of them all, is the judge. Since he created with a design, as the verb indicates, then the knowledge of the race that he created is evaluative. Furthermore, since we are told that he loves righteousness and justice, his standard for evaluating in his observation is to determine if people are righteous. Where is their heart toward him? Our sovereign Lord is the righteous judge. He thoroughly evaluates all human actions. Because he created us, his evaluation can penetrate even the motivations behind all our actions. That's what's intimidating. He understands completely what we are, what we do, and why we do it. And the standard by which he evaluates us is his own righteousness. That's why it's scary. We don't add up. It's where we started. It's silly with that picture not to confess sin. It's silly. It's 
counterproductive. He already sees our heart. The only way to not deal, to not be forgiven and experience his loving kindness is to insist on denial and hiding my sin. That's silly. Psalm 130 tells us, if you, O Lord, would mark iniquities, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Piercingly intimidating because we know we can't stand before such righteous scrutiny if we were not, if it were not for the fourth and final contemplation. 5b says the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord and the psalmist develops that theme by showing how God demonstrated his love by saving his people in 16 through 19. 16 and 17 set forth a general truth. It may appear at times that victory does go to the mighty. At times God may indeed choose a mighty army for victory. But the truth is that that victory can only come if the Lord wills. Ask Pharaoh, ask Nebuchadnezzar, ask any number of generals. We know it a number of places, but unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless he watches over the city, the watchkeeper can stay awake all he wants. Does that mean don't watch and don't build? No, it means acknowledge who ultimately is in control. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is timeless, obviously, right? Trust in the Lord. Let Acknowledge your ways to Him. Let Him direct our paths. So when you sit down with your whatever today's day timer or... Franklin Planner or electronic tool for planning is. Don't sit and scribble without first acknowledging your plans to the Lord. Recognize that He is ultimately in control, not you yourself, not some business manager. We're drawn here to look at the object of our hope and the object of our trust. Great army and mighty warhouses will ultimately disappoint because they are subject to failure. People who trust in them will feel ultimately betrayed. And then again, a great contrast in what we hope in and what we expect. As opposed to the hopelessness of putting our trust in some military force for a victory militarily, the psalmist announces that expectation or hope of deliverance comes only from the loyal love, what you know is loving kindness that the Lord will bring. It's what he decided to put on you as his possession. The false hope for salvation that's used and described in verse 17, the false hope is the salvation of the horse, is often used about breaking covenants. Psalm 89, 33, the Lord writing or speaking says, I will not take my loyal love from him, nor will I betray or deal falsely my faithfulness. The eye of the Lord is brought up again in this fourth one. This time the heart sees and evaluates to find those who fear and put their trust in his faithfulness to rescue from death and danger. 
Whatever the threat, whatever the fear, man's solutions will ultimately let us down and disappoint. This is the contrast. God is perfect in faithfulness. Perfect. We don't know that, humanly speaking. He will never fail. He will never not show up. Which is why Jesus can offer the promise in John, my sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me and I will give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given, to me, given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. I and the Father are one. He alone is our fortress and our shield. Whatever foe may attack, we need to run to him early and run to him often to find our faithful, loving protector. So how do I nurture praise and worship that flows from within that's genuine? Where does our new song come from that causes us to want to shout with joy? Begins with understanding our wonderful counselor, God and Savior, understanding the power of his word, knowing that his works are dependable, his judgment is righteous, and his loyal, faithful love is there to save. As I said, we've just barely touched on the declarations and development of these four themes that the psalmist says are ultimately the things we should study to know that it might bubble up into genuine praise and worship for who he is and thanksgiving, joyful, unwavering faith. The final verses in Psalm 33, we won't go through like that. I'm gonna, it'll be our prayer right now because it is a prayer. And then uh, following the prayer, it will be our benediction as well because the last verse is a perfect benediction. So join me in prayer as we commit this time to the Lord. Father, we see how faithful your word is that you would give the psalmist lyrics to write that speak so deeply of your character, of who you are. Lord, help us to desire to know you more, that like Moses, we would have the faith to come when we're called and to want to know you more, more deeply than we do. Lord, would the things of earth grow dim to us that the things of heaven might shine brightly. Put a hope in our heart and expectation for your ultimate deliverance, your ultimate salvation. And until then, we desire to commit to you and your word in faithful obedience, knowing that our failures are met by your son's blood and he is our advocate before your throne. In your name we pray. Amen.